Well, when you think about a person who's been dealt a hard hand in life, like continually dealt a hard hand in life, what person comes to mind? Job. Somebody you know that comes to mind. There's a woman in my life that I've known for almost 20 years. Her name is Karen. And she has muscular dystrophy, and she's been in a wheelchair for a really long time, but miraculously, God gave her three children. And when those children were small, her husband decided that he wanted a different life, and he tucked tail and ran. This is a woman who has to have help to get up in the morning and go to bed at night and go to the bathroom, and this man left her high and dry. She's a woman who's gone through a lot of pain and suffering in her life. She's been in multiple wrecks. Her daughter was on a trip that I might have been on or might not have been on and up in Colorado, and she has asthma, and she had to get heliflighted out of the mountains because she has asthma. This woman's been through a lot. Not too many years ago, this woman was driving her car, specially made car, near her home, and this man in a mental institute walked out intentionally in front of her and took his own life. This woman's been through pain, she's been through trouble, she's been hurt. And yet this same woman, this same friend of mine, taught school every day for 20 years in the public school system in Houston to disabled children. She ran a Christ-centered nonprofit for a long time that helped disabled kids see their worth in Christ. This woman brought her kids to church every Sunday that they might learn and grow and know Christ. And if she walked in this room today, she would have a a smile on her face as big as Texas. She would greet you. She would want to know about you. She wouldn't want to talk about herself. She would want to know how to pray for you. This is a godly woman who's been through a lot. I remember days in which we would sit at church and pray together for the plight that she was going through, for the hand that she was dealt next and next and next. And what she would say is that I know that I know that God doesn't forsake me. I know that I know that God has never forsaken me and he will never forget me. He loves me. His steadfast love is apparent in my life so I can praise him even through a hard hand. You ever been dealt a hard hand? Life thrown you curveballs? And I feel like the hand we've been dealt is a bunch of like five of clubs or diamonds for the last year. You ever been dealt that hand that it continues to deal in that way? You ever been faithful and it gets worse before it gets better? You ever been there? Have you ever had people turn on you, hurt you? Have you felt forsaken and forgotten? Perhaps you are there now in a certain way, but I've got good news for you. God never forsakes or forgets his children. He never forsakes or forgets his children. And we come to the book of Genesis that we've been in for a while, and we come to the second week of the life of Joseph, and it gets worse for Joseph. The key word, if you're looking for a key word, from chapters 37 to about 39 is the word down. You see the word down over and over and over again. It's as if Moses is trying to show you the downward progression of Joseph's life. He goes down to Shechem to check on his brothers. He goes down into the pit. He goes down to Egypt. And today he's going to show you the life of integrity. Even in great temptation, he's going to go down to the dungeon. And so turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. We'll look at really chapter 39 and chapter 40 today. It's page 33 in the Bible on the end of your row. 
The words won't be up here because that's two chapters today, and so if you've got a Bible on your phone, don't look at the Master's app if you'd like golf. Patrick, watch out. All right, I know it's going on right now. I'm missing it too. There's a Bible on the end of your row. Hopefully you have a Bible with you. Bring your Bibles. We're going to dig into chapter 39 and chapter 40, and you're going to see this battle-tested integrity that Joseph exhibits. You're going to see him falsely accused and imprisoned. You're going to see him seemingly forsaken and forgotten, but God is always at work. That's what we said last week, that God is always providentially at work, that the rudder of the ship of life is always turning in the direction that God wants it to turn, whether you can see it or not. And that's what we're going to see today in the life, the downward spiral for Joseph, who's a man of integrity and a man of forgiveness. So look at chapter 39 with me, and I'm just going to skim for a minute in the first five verses. So he comes down to Egypt, and he's in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the chief of the guard. That means he's a high-ranking official for Pharaoh. That means he's over all the prisons in Egypt. And he gets the particular people that Pharaoh sends in this dictatorship. And so he's over this. He is a likely a wealthy man, a, a man of, that has high um, authority in Egypt. And he comes to Pharaoh's house as the, to the captain of the guard. And what does verse 2 say? Look at it. It starts with this. Even though he's come down to Egypt, imagine how different it is to be your favored son of your father, be thrown in a pit, and now come to a completely different culture where they didn't like Hebrews and they sure didn't like shepherds. And he's the lowest of low, and yet look at what verse 2 says. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph. And look at what happens. He's with Joseph, and Joseph, even in Potiphar's house, this high-ranking official, and he's the lowest of lows. He's successful. He's so successful and he's so trusted that Potiphar puts him in charge of all of his whole household. And so you see his success, but look at what happened. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, if the glass is half empty for you and you've read other passages, what are you thinking? Uh-oh. He's handsome. He's built. Something bad's about to happen and that you would be exactly right. Verse 7 says this, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, bad news, and said, Lie with me. This is direct. Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, his wife. How then can I do this? How does he see it? Great wickedness and sin against my God. As for, and as she spoke to Joseph, look at this, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie even beside her or, her or be with her. So he's rejecting her approaches. In verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do the work and none of the men of the house were there, this is a trap, she caught him by his garment. Joseph has a hard time with garments, y'all. Lie with me again and again and again. But he left his garment in her hand and he did what? He fled and he got out of the house. I'm gonna stop there. You see God's presence with Joseph in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. You see him being successful. And then you see this great temptation over and over again. And you see him weather this temptation because God's presence 
So here's your point. Pursuing God's presence enables his people to weather temptation, the hurricane of temptation, to pursue God's presence. This is what you see. How did he resist? I think there's one word that I would use to to demonstrate how he resisted this woman, dishonor. He knew it would dishonor her. He knew it would dishonor his boss, the one who had put him in charge of his whole household. He knew it would dishonor their marriage, and he knew it would dishonor his God, who he had relationship with, who was presence with. And ultimately, this is what he, he says. He says, it would be great wickedness. Is that how you look upon your sin? Do you see sin as great wickedness against God and against others? This is Joseph's perspective, even in the lowest of places, even in places where it would have been really easy for him to get away with something, really easy for him to do this and have nobody know. But he saw it in the right perspective. He saw it as wickedness to the people around him. He saw it as wickedness toward God. That's how he resisted. He fled You know, God always gives us a way of escape. That's what the Bible says, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. If you haven't memorized this passage, you should memorize this passage. It says this, No temptation has seized you which is common to man. Meaning, all the temptations you face, they may seem great, but everybody's faced them. No temptation is common to man. But God is faithful. Look at this promise. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's there. He's faithful. He's with you. But with that temptation, he will do what? He will give you a way of escape that you might endure it. And so what a great promise God gives us is a way of escape. But here's the question. Here's the deeper question of our hearts. Do we want a way of escape? Do we want a way of escape when temptations are put in front of us? Or do we want to give in to the temptation? It's a deeper heart question that we have to answer. C.S. Lewis says it this way. We are often half-hearted creatures. Think about this. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Think about this word picture. Like a child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Here's the point. We were far, the last point, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We live in this over-sexualized, materialistic world, you and me. That's the world we live in, and it will find you, and it may not be as direct as Potiphar's wife. It might be, but it may not be that direct, because Satan, you know what? Satan will play the long game with your lust. He will play the long game with temptation in your life and with my life. A look here or there, a click here or there. An emotional connection with a co-worker becomes flirting, becomes more. Satan will play the long game with temptation in our lives. Are you pursuing the presence of God as Joseph was here? Is it your desire more than anything else to please him and find your joy in him? Do you take God's way out Or do you give in to the desire that is within? Do you guard your heart? Listen, the heart is best guarded is the heart that is most given to Christ. The heart that is best guarded is the heart that is given over to Christ. And we can have all kinds of countermeasures for all kinds of temptations, whether they're physical like this 
whether materialistic, whether their comfort, whether their status. We can have all kinds of countermeasures here. But the greatest countermeasure you can have is a relationship with Christ, to know Him and be satisfied in Him. To, be, to, to have pleasure in Christ and not the things of this world. And that's what I see in the life of Joseph. See, Joseph, as a young man, as a young man, demonstrates a deep satisfaction and a deep trust in his God, even in the midst of temptation that he could easily get away with. And I don't know about you, but the next verse, what I, what, what I would expect to see in the next verse is reward. I mean, this is a big deal. He doesn't give in to the temptation of Potiphar's wife. I would want to see reward for me coming. I want to see a participation trophy for this. Is that what happens? No, he sees a dungeon. Why? You ever heard the phrase, sorry ladies, I don't mean this rude to you. Hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. This woman is rejected over and over and over again by Joseph, who's a man of integrity, and she's going to bring the hammer down on him. And likely Joseph understood, this woman wants to do this. If I refuse her, there might be more problems than just the problem I have with God. This may get me in more trouble. Here's what's happening here. Integrity, having integrity is costing Joseph. And this is what she does. She brings the hammer down. Look at it, verse 13, and we'll read, look through chapter 40, verse 4. And as soon as she saw that he had left the garment, getting him in trouble with her hand, and he fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household. These are the other servants, the other slaves who maybe, just maybe, they've experienced this same woman in a similar way, but they're under the authority of Potiphar. And she makes up a story. She makes up a false accusation. She's the one who has brought herself on to Joseph, and yet she's creating a false accusation to say, he did it. See, he has brought among us the Hebrew to laugh. That's a racial slur, to laugh at us, this lowly Hebrew. Look at, that, look at it. He came into me to lie with me, and he cried out with a loud voice. And look at this lying that she's doing to these men in her household. And as soon as he heard that, he lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and he fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master. So she's told the men of the house, now Potiphar's come back. It looks like Potiphar's not there a lot. He comes back and she told him the same lie, the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. So it's Potiphar's fault. It's not her fault. It's Joseph's fault and her husband's fault. Came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled. And as soon as the master heard the words of his wife, spoken to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. Here's what would normally happen in Egypt. He'd be dead. Joseph would be dead. He would be executed at this point, but perhaps Potiphar knew some things about his wife. And perhaps he had to save face as well and put this man in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But, look at it, this is important, the Lord was with Joseph. He was with Joseph when he came to Egypt and he got to Potiphar's house. He's with Joseph in the dungeon that he doesn't deserve. And guess what? He's going to be with Joseph next chapter when he's amongst, in front of Pharaoh. God is with Joseph, and he showed him, look at it, steadfast love. 
And then look what happens. The keeper of the prison put him in charge, the same thing. Listen, pursuing God's presence enables him to withstand temptation, but your second point is this. When living a life of integrity costs you, because it often will cost you in this world, when you live a life of integrity, God is still at work. He's still at work. Do you see it here? He's still with him. He's still with him in this dungeon. Do you think Joseph knows the significance of what's happening? I don't think he knows that being put in this dungeon is going to get him closer to who? It's going to get him closer to Pharaoh. We know the rest of the story. Joseph doesn't know the rest of the story. And then you come down in chapter 40, and who else is in the prison? Who's in the prison? The cupbearer of the king is in the prison. The baker of the king is in the prison. God is working. Do you think this is by chance that these men are there and they bring him to the specific prison in which Joseph is near to that warden and then that warden puts Joseph in charge of these guys? Do you see it there? He appointed Joseph, chapter 40, verse 4, He appointed Joseph to be with these men. These are men that are next to the king. This is the closest you can get to Pharaoh, the cupbearer, the guy who tastes the food and the drink for the king so he's not poisoned. This is as close as he can get. And so your point is that living a life in integrity costs you, but God is surely still working. Do you believe that? Do you believe even when you are falsely accused? You ever been falsely accused? Even when the worst of things happen, God is still with you and he is still working. Listen, we live in this weird culture of false accusations. We don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Turn on your app. I mean, we have news now that is just all false accusation and it doesn't matter if it's true and it's found out to be false. The purpose is to put that thought in your head about that person or that thing. That's the world and that's the air that we breathe. We live in a world of false accusation as if it doesn't even matter that people's lives are shattered because of it. Have you ever resisted temptation and been falsely accused by the person who's actually creating the problems? How does that feel? How does it feel when you're falsely accused of something and you suffer the consequences of those things? You ever falsely accuse someone else not careful with your words or with the stories that you read or the things that you hear. See, this is ultimately what God is doing in the life of Joseph to bring him closer to his plans. And that's really hard to to understand and believe sometimes. This is a painful road that Joseph has to take. Kids, I want to first and fifth graders, I always want to try to do something for you in this. Listen, here's the thing. As you grow up, as you live a life prayerfully, your parents are praying this, a life of integrity, a life that honors Christ at school or wherever you're at, you need to remember that there are some people that don't live that way and they're going to be frustrated and maybe even convicted that you're living that way. And sometimes they might put you down and sometimes they might accuse you of things that you haven't done because it makes them feel bad. You don't need to worry about that. Jesus, you know what Jesus says? Don't be surprised though. Don't be surprised when people revile you and say all kinds of things against you because they did it to me before they've done it to you. And so be wise, kids. Be wise um, as you live and as you grow and as you grow up trying to live for Christ. And adults, you know this as well as I do. 
that we can be falsely accused, but here's the beautiful picture. The only person that ever walked the planet that was perfect was falsely accused. He was put on a cross and he suffered for you and for me. And he died there on your behalf and on my behalf, the people who falsely accuse him. And he offers forgiveness for you and for me. So this is the Messiah, the, the, the Christ that you and I know. And the thing is, here's the question, was Jesus in an earthly way, was Jesus ever vindicated in an earthly way? He wasn't. And this is the hardest thing about accusation oftentimes, isn't it? One of the hardest things about accusation is, is, is that it makes us doubt ourselves. It makes us wonder why we didn't create more boundaries for this person. It makes us defensive. You ever feel defensive like you want to be your defense lawyer when you're at work and somebody falsely accuses you of something? And more than anything, it makes you enraged that someone would do that to you. But look at the example of Jesus. And listen, there may be times in which you have to defend yourself. But look at what Jesus did. He was reviled. He was treated this way. And yet God would vindicate him. Leave your vindication with the Lord. How do we respond? How do we respond when we know that we're in the right? You need to use wisdom when you think about responding to false accusation. What I notice about Joseph, and I don't see all the picture of Joseph in the text. It's a narrative text. I don't see how all of his emotion, we see actually very little of his emotion. I'm sure there's a lot there. But the reality of the situation is, is that Joseph keeps going. He keeps being faithful to his God. He keeps entrusting himself to his God. So can any good come out of delayed deliverance in Joseph's life? Let's keep looking at this. And I want you to see this thread. And this is an important thread as we think about our lives and we think about how we live in this broken, fallen world. How we live when we are tempted. How we live when people falsely accuse us. And here's your third point. God's people shine brightly in the darkest of days. God's people shine brightly in the darkest of days. Imagine being Joseph and coming down to Egypt in a completely different culture and language and religion and being thrust into that as the lowest of low and coming into Potiphar's house. You know what we often do when we experience trouble? You know what I often do when I experience trouble and hardship and just kind of want to ball, crawl into a ball, go to sleep, sleep all day, not deal with it, not entrust myself to God, but look at what Joseph does. I'm sure he had those moments over these years where he's in a prison. I'm sure he did. But here's what I also see in Joseph's life. He was successful. The Lord was with him. And when the Bible says the Lord was with him, surely God is working in Potiphar's life, in the warden's life, in Pharaoh's life. But here's what I don't think it's like. I don't think it's some fairy dust like you would see in a movie to sprinkle over the minds of these people and say, he's just going to have favor. Joseph, in his human responsibility, he doesn't ball up. He is successful. He works hard. He builds the trust of Potiphar. He builds the trust of the warden. He builds the trust of Pharaoh. He doesn't ball up when there is trouble all around him. He engages. He engages, and this is what you see in chapter 39. He's successful. He puts him over everything. You see the same thing with the warden when he goes to the prison. At that point, I'd be like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> 
I'm done. I've done all this right. And I'm in a dungeon for saying no to this woman. I'm done. That's not what happens with Joseph. The warden puts him over everything. He works hard. He's diligent. He's trustworthy. He's above reproach. He doesn't ball up. He's not paralyzed by his circumstances. And then what you see in chapter 39 and 40 is another thing. You see Potiphar. What does Potiphar notice? Potiphar notices how successful he is, but look at what he says in chapter 39. He says in in verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So guess what? Potiphar and Pharaoh and the warden, all Egyptians, all people who worship the sun god Ra, who worship the Nile River, who worship crickets and things like that. This is the crazy gods in which they worship. They pay attention to Yahweh because of Joseph's good character and the way in which he lives in a dark day. And there is a lot of application for your life and my life in that. And this is the same thing you see with his dreams. God had allowed him to interpret these dreams of the cupbearer and the baker in chapter 40. And does Joseph take credit and go, hey... Maybe he's grown up a little bit since 17 when he was bragging about it with his brothers. Hey, you're going to bow down to me. You know what he does here? This belongs to God. Like, I'm not interpreting this dream. God has given me the ability to do this. Here's something interesting about the whole dream thing. If you've been wondering, I haven't really dealt with it yet. It's kind of scary to deal with. In Egypt, they place great emphasis in this culture and in Egyptian culture on dream interpreters. You can go to the book of Exodus and see this. They had all these people who interpret dreams. Guess what? None of them can, could, could interpret this dream. And so God uses Joseph to interpret this dream so that his name would be seen as great. And that's what Joseph does in chapter 40 when you come down to verse 8. We have dreams and there is no one to interpret them. They had a host of people that would interpret dreams in that day and none of them could interpret that. In the, whole king, in the whole kingdom or in the whole prison, do not interpretations, here's what Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. So this whole situation, here's what's happening in this whole situation, that God is using trouble and pain and suffering for his glory through the life of Joseph. And he gives God praise and he points to God and says, my God can do this. I want you to think about that as you think about this year, 2020. I want you to think about this as you think about living in COVID and a contentious election and a changing secular culture. The temptation for us is just to ball up into a corner in our home and stay there and not engage. And I'm not saying don't use wisdom, particularly with a a virus that's out there. I'm not saying that, but I am saying, who is your trust in? Who is my trust in in a pandemic? in a changing secular culture that doesn't maybe look like the culture that you grew up in, that's progressive in the way it thinks about God and the values of Scripture, and you wonder what that's going to look like for your children and their children. Those are legitimate concerns, but we are the people of God that ought not ball up in a culture like the one we live in, that we ought to shine brightly for the Lord in the midst of trouble, in the midst of of darkness. God's people shine brightly in the darkest of days. That's a lesson that I think you can see all the way through Joseph's life. Well, Joseph went down to the pent. He went down to Egypt. He goes down to a dungeon. He's forsaken. He's tempted. He's forgotten. He feels like he's forgotten, but the Lord was still with him. 
And guess what? Next week, you're going to see a new day dawning in the life of Joseph. He's come all the way down to his lowest point, and God is going to exalt him and bring about much good and blessing, not only to him, but his family and the nation Israel for all that he's walked through in his providence. Listen, here's your takeaway. God never forgets or forsakes you. God never forgets or forsakes you. Do you believe that? Even in the darkest of days, God is with you. Even when you're dealt a bad hand in life, even when you're tempted and you don't give in to the temptation and you're falsely accused, even when it doesn't go right for you, even though you're doing right, that God is with you, even in the darkest of days. It makes me think of when we come to the, usually the month of April, and before Easter, we have this thing called what? Good Friday. You know, I often wonder when I think of the disciples and the people that knew Jesus and walked with him in first century, I often wonder about how they viewed that day. Here's the man that they've been following and learning from and being taught by and seeing miracles and believing who he is. And he's put on a cross and he's scourged and he dies and he breathes his last I wonder what the, the way in which people saw him then. The last four words of chapter 40, and he forgot him. The cupbearer forgot Joseph. He didn't remember Joseph. Remember the words of Jesus? Why have you forsaken me, Father? I wonder how the followers of Jesus on Good Friday felt. Did you think that they saw it as Good Friday? No. But you know what we say on Easter after Good Friday? We say Sundays are coming, don't we? Sundays are coming. He's not going to stay in the pit. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to demonstrate and prove who he is. He's going to be your savior and king. And this is what we see in the life of Joseph. We see him exalted. See, Jesus was tempted. He was innocent. He was falsely accused. He was forsaken. He went down into this dark dungeon of the cross and to the pit and was buried, but he rose again. Do you know that message this morning? Do you know that message? Do you believe that message that Christ has died in your place? That you're like, you and I are like the other brothers to Joseph. You and I are like Potiphar's wife to Joseph before Jesus that we put him there. And yet he rose from the dead. The Father raised him up and seated him at the right hand. And he offers forgiveness to the very people that need it most. God never forgets or forsakes you. And he does that through the cross. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the life of Joseph. This is a, this is a text in which we, we look at and say, Wow, Joseph went through so much in his life. And yet you did not forget him like you don't forget us. Lord, I think of the passage in 2 Corinthians. I pray this over our people this morning. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, these cracked clay pots. That's who we are, Lord. 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Lord, I pray for us through your spirit that the life of Jesus that we can't live apart from you working in our hearts. I pray that the life of Jesus would be lived through us in the darkest of days. Let us shine brightly. Let our neighbors know that and the people around us that we're close to, whether COVID's going on or a contentious election or secular culture, Lord, I pray that people would see in us, not us, but Lord, I pray that they would see the Spirit of God working in us because we trust you more than we trust an election, that we trust you more than we fear a virus or this world around us. Make us a people through your spirit that would put all of our trust in our King, in Jesus' name. Amen.